seated. I don't know if you ever feel this way that sometimes in, in our world Christianity feels rather fragile and vulnerable and weak. Um, we've all seen images this week of these Islamic terrorists who massacred people who disagreed with them, and we hear almost every week of persecution in the Middle East, in Africa, places like Nigeria, Kenya. It seems like every week we hear uh, how our brothers and sisters in Christ are being attacked for their faith. And so there seems to be increasing violence against the Christian faith. And then there's ideological attacks on our faith as well. Um, maybe you saw or heard about the atheist organization that uh, put up billboards around the country around Christmas time comparing believing in God to believing in Santa Claus, which uh, promoted and prompted some conversation at our household and, uh, around, around the dinner table, why that's not equivalent and why there are good reasons to believe in God. But um, it does feel at times that Christianity is is under siege. And, and then there's, we could talk about this, the internal problems of the church. We could kind of turn the camera on ourselves and, and talk about our own weaknesses, our divisions, and things like that. And we wonder, what, what is it going to take for the church to survive? How can the church make it under attack and under pressure and, and these sorts of things? These are not new issues. In fact, Mark is writing, and I'm going to preach from the Gospel reading, the Gospel of Mark. Mark is writing to Christians who are under attack. They're being persecuted. They're suffering. Some Christians, uh, some scholars believe that this is happening at the time of Nero uh, during his terrible persecution of the church. We're not sure exactly uh, what was happening, but there are clues within the text that this is a community that's suffering. One of the great themes of the Gospel of Mark is that Jesus is the suffering Messiah. And if you're going to follow him, you're going to follow this path that took Jesus all the way to the cross. Take up your cross and follow me, Jesus says. How then does Mark encourage the Christians who are facing these struggles uh, to keep on? to keep on the path, to stay as uh, faithful followers of Jesus Christ. How does he do that? One thing that he does throughout this book is he wants to unfold the character, the person, the work of Jesus Christ. And he's doing that because he wants people to know that it, to hang on to, to uh, the Christian faith means to hang on to this person, Jesus Christ. And if you're hanging on to him, there's your strength. There's the resource to keep going on. And so Mark, throughout this gospel, points us to the truth of who Jesus Christ is. And that's what he does here at his baptism. At the very beginning of the gospel, and, and he starts his gospel differently from Matthew and Luke, and they start with the nativity and the angels and the shepherds and those sorts of things. Mark gets right to the mission of Jesus right away. This is the beginning of Jesus' ministry and mission, his baptism. But he's unfolding here, reminding his readers and us of who Jesus Christ is from the very beginning. And so what I want to do is, is look at this because just like the people that Mark is, is writing to who are under 
showing weaknesses and challenges to their faith. We undergo that as well. And the key is hanging on to the person of Jesus. We don't follow Jesus because he makes our life trouble-free. We follow him because of who he is. And so let's look here at what the baptism tells us about who Jesus is. I want to point out four things. First of all, Jesus is the fulfillment of prophecy. Jesus is the fulfillment of all of God's promises. Now, we didn't read this, but Mark begins his um, gospel by quoting from the prophet Isaiah. The beginning of the gospel goes like this. The beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God, as it is written in Isaiah the prophet. What did Isaiah write? Behold, I send my messenger before your face, who will prepare your way. The voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his path straight. And then Mark says, John appeared. This prophecy in Isaiah is a prophecy about John the Baptist, uh, not directly to Jesus, but God sent John the Baptist to prepare the way for Jesus, the Messiah. And what Mark is getting at is in linking John to the prophecy of Isaiah is that God's sovereign plan is now unfolding in the ministry of John the Baptist and most fully in the ministry of Jesus Christ. He wants his readers to know that these events do not take place by the will of men. It's not as if John and Jesus, who were cousins, got together at a family reunion and said, let's orchestrate something really big here. No, this was not uh, orchestrated by the will of men. This is something that eventually, of course, cost their lives. God is at work. It's an amazing thing that's happening in John the Baptist's ministry as, as crowds of people are coming out to listen to John the Baptist. They're not going to Jerusalem. They're not going to the priest. They're going to John the Baptist who is calling them back to God. And God is clearly at work in this thing. And it was so important for Mark's readers to understand that in Jesus Christ, God fulfills his promises. He's not forgotten them. And we can personalize that today for us. We need to be reminded today that God is in control, ultimately, of history. He is directing events according to his will. Even though we don't understand what's happening, God is still sovereign. He's still in control. And we need to remember that Jesus is the fulfillment of all the promises of God. The very center of the Bible, Jesus Christ is. And you can think of the, the promises of God, spokes of a wheel. They all feed into the hub, which is Jesus Christ. In him, all the promises of God are summed up. Paul says in 2 Corinthians 2.10, For all of God's promises are yes in Jesus Christ. So let's personalize this today. God has not forgotten you. God has not forgotten his promises to you in Jesus Christ. When we look at the character of God in Scripture and him fulfilling ancient promises, it shows us that he's a great promise keeper. And it encourages us to believe all the promises that God has made in Jesus Christ about our life now. In him is life, an abundant life. That's a promise for us now. 
And because of the character of God as a promise keeper, we can trust that promise. We can trust the promises of God that are made to us in Jesus Christ about the life to come. That if we believe in him, we will have eternal and everlasting life. So the baptism of Jesus shows us that God fulfills his promises in Jesus. There's another truth about Jesus I want you to know that comes out of the baptism. And that is that Jesus identifies with sinners. This is a friend of sinners. John's baptism clearly was a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins, Mark tells us, verse 4. And that raises this ancient sort of vexing question, why was Jesus baptized? Jesus was the holy son of God. Jesus was the spotless lamb. Jesus was pure holiness. He was like us in every way, but he didn't have sin. So why did Jesus submit to the baptism of John? And I'm kind of inferring here, I'm kind of this text a little bit and taking some liberties because Mark doesn't tell us why exactly Jesus was baptized. But I think it's legitimate to, to infer that one of the reasons why was simply to identify with sinners. This was a baptism for the forgiveness of sins. Jesus was not a sinner, but Jesus stands with sinners. Jesus shows himself to be a friend of sinners, to be in solidarity with sinners. He was called by his critics a friend of sinners, tax collectors and prostitutes. And the religious leader says, those are the people Jesus Those are the people that Jesus hang out with, and that's a sign that he's really not God. Because their view of godliness was, we have to separate ourselves from sinners so that we're not contaminated by them. Jesus' view of godliness was, I'm going to go to sinners and I'm going to contaminate them with the love of God. And I'm going to call them to a new way of life. I'm going to call them to a life of repentance and holiness and true life. I, I don't know about you, but... I I think it's good news that Jesus is a friend of sinners. Wasn't there a time this week when you thought, why in the world did I say something like that? Wasn't there a time where your sinful nature percolated? I don't know, some of you are saying no, so there are saints among us who've reached absolute perfection. I know, I know you're just kidding. But for the rest of us mere mortals, Marlene... Why did I think that? Why did I say that? Why did I do that? If anybody knew what I was thinking, what would they think of me? And, and when, we, when that stuff comes up, it, it tempts us to want to move away from God in our shame. And Jesus, because he's a friend of sinners, is saying, no, you need to move towards me. I'm, I'm welcoming you back to receive a fresh attitude of Jesus towards sinners starts at his baptism. Well, we see it starting at his baptism in his public ministry. I'm standing with sinners, and it's going to take him all the way to the cross. I'm going to give my life for sinners. He paid the price. He paid the penalty for our sins so we can be reconciled with God. So that's one of the truths that we see in his baptism. And surely this should be a motivation for us if we call ourselves disciples of Jesus Christ is to say, I'm going to be loyal to this person for my sin, who paid the penalty for my sin, who has called me to himself. He knows who I am, and yet he wants to be in relationship with me, and he's given his very life to reconcile me to
to God. And so I'm going to be loyal to him no matter what. He's a friend of sinners. The third truth we see about Jesus at his baptism is that he is the baptizer with the Holy Spirit. Verse 8, John says, I baptize you with water. But Jesus is greater because he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. In the Old Testament, there were prophecies about the days of the Messiah, the last days. And in those days, God was going to pour out His Spirit upon all flesh. It was not going to be the special reserve of just a few people, the prophets and the priests. The Holy Spirit was not going to be just contained in the, in the Holy of Holies. The Holy Spirit is going to be poured out in the days of the Messiah on all flesh. And of course, we know that happened on the day of Pentecost. And through the ministry of Jesus. It, it was possible because the Messiah had come. On the day of Pentecost, the wind and the fire of God Spirit filled the place where the early Christians prayed. And now as Christians, we all can experience God's presence and God's power in a personal work of the Holy Spirit. All Christians have the Holy Spirit. We can't even say that Jesus is Lord apart from the Holy Spirit. Uh, all Christians have been born again by the Spirit of God. There's a, there's a lot of dimensions to the work of the Holy Spirit that we need to think about and talk about and celebrate. And we sang that beautiful hymn about the work of the Holy Spirit. There are many different dimensions of the work of the Holy Spirit. But what I want to bring out is that the Holy Spirit also gives us a sense of the power and presence of the living God in our life. And not every Christian has experienced that, but it's for every Christian. It was a normal experience, I think, of the early Christians to experience the Spirit of God as a, as a power and as a presence, personal power and presence, not detached from Jesus or the love of God, not just power detached from the character of God, but the power of the love and presence of God in their life. And we saw that in our reading from Acts. The Spirit of God fell on these people, and it was very evident. I heard a testimony of a man this week who was talking about prayer ministry. Some of you are involved in prayer ministry, ministry for others, praying for them in the name of Jesus, asking the Holy Spirit to minister in their life. And maybe you've had this experience, or maybe you've been on the receiving end of an experience like this. But this man said that sometimes, and this is what he does really for his ministry, he prays with people. And he says, sometimes when I'm praying for people, it's as if Jesus himself has come into the room. In that moment, I can tell when something like that happens. It's as if Jesus himself comes into the room and lays hands on them, and you can see it, what's happening in their life. God is beginning to keep them from the inside out, and it's not me working, it's the Holy Spirit. That's the ministry of the Holy Spirit. He makes Jesus present. He makes Jesus our contemporary. And it's all possible because Jesus is the baptizer of the Holy Spirit. At his baptism, Jesus is anointed with the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit descends on him like a dove. It doesn't mean, and we see pictures of the Spirit symbolized by a dove, it doesn't necessarily mean that the Holy Spirit became a dove, but like a dove, in dove-like form. Something happened there, a vision that Christ saw of the Spirit manifest. And he was empowered by the Holy Spirit here at the beginning of his ministry. He, Jesus, the Lord, the Messiah, 
needed the power of the Holy Spirit to do his ministry. How many of us are involved in ministry? Whether you were this, if you're a Christian, you're involved in ministry, or God has a ministry for you to do as a witness or word or de- uh, word and deed to your family, to your friends, to your neighbors, reaching out in love. We all have a ministry and a calling. If Jesus needed the empowerment of the Holy Spirit to do his ministry, how much more do we need? The power of the Holy Spirit. And so it's an opportunity for us to reflect and to pray fill us afresh with the Holy Spirit. Why? Because of Jesus Christ. He's the baptizer with the Holy Spirit. And then finally, I want to point out something. And again, this is sort of, I know, basic truth for many of us today. But it's good for us to remember some of these basic truths about who Jesus is. A final thing I want to point out is the uniqueness, the absolute uniqueness of Jesus Christ here announced at his baptism. That he stands completely apart from other human... Yes, he's one with us in his, in his humanity, but in another sense, he stands completely apart from any other human who's ever lived. He's not just another religious teacher. He's not a prophet in the line of other prophets. He's declared here by God to be my beloved son. You are my son. You are my beloved son. And with you, I'm well pleased. In the other Gospels, in, the, in Matthew and Luke, we learn that Jesus is the Son of God through the proclamation of the angels to Joseph and to Mary. And we saw last week that Jesus, at 12 years old, was aware of his unique relationship to God in the temple. Remember that scene from Luke? I must be in my father's house. He was aware of his relationship to God and his sonship in some way, even at the age of 12. So we've already been made aware in the gospel story that he's the son of God, but here God himself says, you are my son, my beloved, and with you I'm well pleased. God himself confirms the identity of Jesus Christ. There's a lot of history and uh, theology attached to this phrase, and I could spend probably 10 to 15 minutes just easily unpacking this. I won't do this. Some of you got worried when I said that. No, I'm not in the Presbyterian church where I've got 45 minutes to unfold this stuff. Don't say amen. I'm not saying. <laughs> but uh, let me just give you some background here. Son of God. In the Old Testament, God sometimes referred to the nation of Israel as his son. Hosea 11.1. 1. When Israel was a child, I had loved him. And out of Egypt I called my son. So God refers to Israel, the people of God, as his son. But Israel wasn't a perfect son. Israel was often disobedient and ungrateful like we are. Jesus fulfilled the mission of Israel. Jesus is the completer of the mission of Israel, which was to be a blessing to the entire world. To be completely faithful to God, and to be a blessing to the entire world. The title Son of God was also used in the Old Testament to talk about King David, Psalm 2. You can study that if you want to look at that. Psalm 2, God calls David his son. Today I have begotten you, my son. He's referring to David, but it's also a prophecy about the Messiah who would come from the line of David and establish an eternal kingdom. So the title Son 
in the Old Testament also is messianic. It refers to the Messiah, the king that God would send. First to the nation of Israel, refers to the Messiah. But then we know from John, the first chapter of John, that the understanding of sonship is that Jesus is fully divine and he's an eternal son. He is fully divine and he is the eternal son of God. We say it in our creed. He is light from God from very God from very God or true God from true God. He is the divine son of God. So there's no title in the Old Testament. There's nowhere in the Old Testament where that or place in the Old Testament where that formal title, the Son of God, the beloved Son of God, is given. It's here unique to Jesus Christ. It captures all those other senses of sonship, but it's unique here to Jesus Christ. He's a unique Son because He's the Son by nature. And I think it's important for us. I'm going to just do a little, just a tiny little bit of uh, teaching here on this because. We need to understand what sonship means in our pluralistic culture, the idea of Jesus as the divine son, but also fully human. When we say Jesus is the son of God, this is very basic, but just want to get it out there, we don't mean that he's the son of God in any physical sense. We mean that he, his nature is the same as his father. He has the same divine nature, and he's fully God, and he's fully man. And the church fathers had a helpful analogy for us to, to think about that would um, help us to make some sense of it. The church father says that when you put a, a, a piece of iron into a raging fire, what happens is that two things come together. Uh, the iron and the fire come together in one composite union. Um, the iron has not ceased to be iron, and the fire has not ceased to be fire, but they've come together in a new way, in one composite union. And that's the way with the two natures of Jesus Christ. He's fully divine and he's fully human. It's come together in a composite union in his person. He doesn't cease or he doesn't become less human because he's fully divine. He isn't less divine because he's fully human. It's come together in a unique composite union in the person of Jesus Christ. He is the divine son of God. That makes him completely unique and that's why he can save us. Only God can save us from sin. And so that's why he saves us and that's why we can worship him and that's why we have to remain loyal. We're called to remain loyal to Jesus Christ. Christian faith centers on the person of Jesus Christ. And Mark wants to get that across to his readers and to us today. Let me just close with this illustration. A man named Sundhar Singh was raised in India to an affluent Sikh family in India. He was opposed to the Christian faith. When he was a teenager, he burned a Christian gospel in public to show his vehemence against his anger and hostility against the Christian faith uh, because he saw Christianity as the religion of colonizers. And so this, uh, this Sikh, uh, Sundhar Singh, as a young person, took a stand against Christ. But then as he got a little bit older, he had an experience with Christ. He saw Christ in a vision, and he was converted. And so he went throughout India proclaiming the gospel of Jesus Christ. One day he was visiting a Hindu college, and a lecturer rather aggressively asked him, Why are you a Christian? What do you have in Christianity that you don't have in any of our religions? And he said, Sir, I have Christ. I know you have Christ, but what particular principle or doctrine have you found? The particular thing I found, he said, is Jesus Christ. It's the person of Christ that defines Christianity. And then everything else flows from there. 
Yeah, the doctrines are different. The theology is different. Why? Because of what's revealed about the truth of this person, Jesus Christ. Can you say that in your life? What defines me, what defines my faith, is this person, Jesus Christ, the Son of God, the Messiah, the bearer of our sins, the baptizer of the Holy Spirit, the one who fulfills all the promises of God. Amen.